Well, good to see you all this morning, and I invite you to pull out your Bibles. We're in Acts chapter 21 this morning as we're working our way through the, the book of Acts. And as you're turning there, I'll uh, kind of propose this. You don't have to spend very much time with a seasoned believer in conversation. It doesn't take much prodding to have somebody share with you a particular wound that they've had over the years from the church. Have you noticed this before in conversations where you can find in a conversation where the, the church has just disappointed them? It doesn't have to be in a massive way, sometimes in a small way, but so often it's either a leader that's disappointed them or another attender, but either way, it's left them kind of coming out of a church period or season a little bit maybe gun shy, you might say, a little bit hesitant to kind of engage within the church, or even worse than that, the effect of church injury is that you also have the, the non-believer that hears stories about church injuries or, or wounds and is way more hesitant or builds the case for them to just, I'm going to keep my distance from this church thing. And that's the sad thing about when we mess up as the church is it has ramifications, that's why I believe it's so important as we talk about the church for us to be diligent in learning from our past mistakes. Anybody, as you look back at your life, would say, you know what, I've probably learned more from mistakes than successes. I would say that's true for the church as well. It's so critical because there's so much at stake for believers and potential believers that we get this church thing right. On well, this next section that we're about to study, you're going to see uh, quite a few, what I would suggest, missteps by the leaders in Jerusalem as they lead the church, ways that they've kind of dropped the ball, if you will, and so many things that we can glean from that, not just for our, our own church, but principles that I would propose also apply to our families, to our relationships, how we interact with people, how we communicate all of that's going to be in this section of scripture this morning. Let me pray before we explore that. God, we invite you now to speak to us, and we're coming to you humbly teachable, that you'd stretch us and grow us through the study of your word. And I believe that there's something in this section for everyone in this room if they choose to engage. So we invite your spirit, even as we sung this morning, to be present here, moving and working, drawing us to yourself, God, drawing us to how you want to grow us and stretch us in your likeness. We pray this in the strong name of Jesus Christ. Amen. So chapter 21, John started us last week in this section of scripture, and we're picking up in the story. If you remember last week, it was a chance where all of Paul's friends, all of the other disciples were encouraging him not to do something. Who can tell me what they were encouraging not to do? Where was he not supposed to go? Jerusalem. Yes, they were warning him, please don't go. It's not going to go well for you if you choose to go to Jerusalem. Verse 15, after these days, we got ready and went up to Jerusalem. And some of the disciples from Caesarea went with us, bringing us to the house of Manasseh of Cyprus, an early disciple with whom we should lodge. When we had come to Jerusalem, the brothers received us gladly. On the following day, Paul went in with us to James, and all the elders were present. After greeting them, he related one by one the things that God had done among the Gentiles through his ministry. And when they heard it, they glorified God. And they said to him, You see, brother, how many thousands there are among the Jews 
of those who have believed. They are all zealous for the law, and they have been told about you that you teach all the Jews who are among the Gentiles to forsake Moses, telling them not to circumcise their children or walk according to our customs. We'll stop there for a second. It starts with kind of the pickup of where John left off. They were warned warnings, and we don't believe that they were warnings saying that you can't go. It was more warnings saying, if you do go to Jerusalem, there's some things that you should be expecting. You shouldn't be shocked by coming persecution when you arrive there. And so he looks past that. He says that we were told prior that he was constrained by the spirit to head to Jerusalem. So he does that, travels the final 60 miles, arrives in Jerusalem, kind of picture him and his, his buddies kind of walking in, pretty intense scene. For some reason, this was the music playing in the background that I saw as he's walking in. For, that, that, that's what came to mind. Like th this is some intense moment. Any Star Wars fans there? But, uh, but here's the intense moment that he's walking into where he's been warned, it's about to get heated here in Jerusalem. It's about to get intense, and that's what he should expect. And upon first arrival, we see that it actually goes pretty well. It says that he's welcomed warmly. The believers there are excited to see him. The, it says that he's uh, ho this host, Manasin, takes him into his home. And uh, they start having opportunity there uh, to engage with the people. It's interesting to me that it doesn't mention any kind of a response. If you remember, when he was coming to Jerusalem, he was bringing all kinds of financial aid. It doesn't mention any kind of response to that. We're not quite sure why. But it does say that he has a chance to share with the elders and leaders there. James, it mentions specifically. James was who? Jesus' brother. He's there kind of for all intents and purposes, the main leader in Jerusalem, as well as other elders. So basically, the church leadership comes together, and Paul takes this opportunity to point to all that God has been doing through their ministry to the Gentiles. Pretty exciting time. You imagine Paul, who we already know can pull off a 12-hour sermon. He's pretty jazzed to share. So when it says that he's sharing every single thing, you wonder what it's like. But he's saying, man, it's finally working. The church is taking root. It's getting established. You imagine the excitement when finally something is taking root and happening, and he's sharing about that. I was picturing like Thomas Edison when he finally sees the flicker of the light bulb as it goes on, or Alexander Graham Bell when he finally hears the, the sound of another voice coming across the wire, or the Wright brothers as the plane comes off the ground just a few feet. Man, the excitement Paul similarly is like, oh, thank you, God. The church is taking root amongst the Gentiles. He's excited to report that. And it says that this, it says that he meant, related it one by one, the things that God had done. So he's not taking credit. He's appropriately pointing glory to God where it should be pointed. And it says that they, in response, did what? They glorified God. So he's appropriately directing the focus to God, and God's getting the glory for that. But you notice here that the meeting turns a corner fairly early on. And I don't know if you catch it there in the text, kind of what's happening, but basically there's an issue that they want to bring up to Paul. What is the issue? You see it there in the text. The issue is this. 
that all of these new believers in Jerusalem, so all of these Jews that had embraced Jesus Christ by, as the Messiah, which was amazing news. It refers to the, seeing thousands of them, which is amazing news, points to the fact that they're still committed to the law or zealous of the law, which is also can be a good thing. But it points to what's happening is that someone or some folks have been presenting to the new believers in Jerusalem that Paul is out and about reaching out to Jews outside of Jerusalem and telling them what? Telling them that no longer do they have to follow the law of Moses. No longer do they have to have their children circumcised or follow the, the customs that they grew up with and, and pointing to basically him being kind of anti law has left a response to the, the, the people there with a pretty bad taste in their mouth towards Paul. Imagine this moment in the conversation where Paul uh, maybe asked this simple question, so you corrected them, right? You, you set them straight, right? Saying that to a, a completely silent group of leaders Probably if you ask Paul what was one of the most disappointing times for the church in his life, I would guess this might be one of them. Why hadn't James and the elders corrected all of these uh, accusations about Paul? Why hadn't they addressed this issue? Why hadn't they used it as a teachable moment to show the marriage between law and grace, the beautiful way that God designed them to partner together? See, Paul had been there eight years prior, and they were confused about the role of the law, and now he's showing up eight years later, and guess what? They're still confused about the role of the law between law and grace. What, why hasn't that been corrected? What, what's going on? Are they, had they kind of pushed off that responsibility, trying to avoid offense? We don't know exactly why, but Paul's left there completely misrepresented and misunderstood. You might say he was the very first millennial, right? Misunderstood, I'm sorry, I couldn't resist that. But here's the, the idea, is he, he's left there kind of vulnerable where they're like, yeah, they're, they're all saying this about you. That stinks for you, Paul. And he must have been just broken and hurt because were these accusations true? Were these accusations true? No, maybe the, the presentation, some facts might have been accurate, but the heart behind it was inaccurate. If Paul was opposed to circumcision, why would he have circumcised Timothy, his closest companion, in Acts 16, if he's not committed to that? If he opposed Jewish tradition, why did he take a Nazarite vow in Acts 18? There's so many things that you could point to kind of diffusing this idea of anti-law Paul. That, that rhymed. That was nice. But, but the, all of that was incorrect. You think about it. Paul wasn't opposing Jewish traditions. So many, when you actually dig in, so many Jewish traditions point to what? The coming Messiah. There's so many beautiful things. I remember just about a, a year ago for uh, around Easter, uh, we spent some time with a family and got to go to a, a, a Seder dinner. I don't know if you've had the treat of that and just seeing how many, uh, you can see us there with the nice little, doesn't that hat look good on me there? Chase has one that says the Dodgers. That was maybe they're running short on those. Uh, they didn't have a Cubs one. But anyway, we uh, spent some time, and man, seeing how many things from the Old Testament scream of the coming Messiah. 
all pointing to the sacrifice that was made on our behalf. It's an awesome thing. Even this last week, we had dinner at a family's house that's uh, Jewish, even within our own church, and they had a beautiful prayer before uh, dinner that we got to participate in, and all of these things pointing to Jesus Christ. So Paul isn't there trying to take that out. He's not, he's not, he's not trying to pull, pull them away from the law. He's just making sure they have an appropriate understanding of the law. And what's the appropriate understanding of the law? That the law can't, what? Save us. The law can't save us. It's a beautiful compliment to someone that is saved, that they've obviously followed the law that God's put in place with our best interest in mind, but it's not what's going to justify us. That confusion needs to be settled then. It needs to be settled now so that we're still not trying to, on our own effort, achieve God's favor. So that's all that he's taught. He's been very clear about that. But it stinks that he's now stuck with these false accusations against him. Anyone here ever find out that some things were said about you? You later discovered and you're like, where did that come from? That's completely inaccurate. That's not, not a, a correct representation of me. I was just talking to our neighbor right here that has our uh, farm animals here. You've all noticed. You've maybe smelled the scent. Uh, you've uh, coming in. I was just chatting with her. We have a good relationship and was just chatting with her. She's like, you know, the, the weirdest thing, she goes, there's a few neighbors that were talking about you recently, not about the church, but about me specifically. They said, they said that you moved into the neighborhood and that you hate animals. I'm like, wow, well, that's new information. One, I didn't move into this neighborhood. That's my buddy, John. Uh, but two, I love animals. I have a dog. I have a rabbit. I have three fish that came back with, from Camp ABF that are in my house. All of them are welcomed warmly. I'm like, where did this come from within, like, where, where did somebody get that perception? And you're just like, I don't know. I don't know. How do you diffuse that? What do you, how do you, do you go on a campaign now in the neighborhood with like wearing like animals? I, I don't know, like carrying animals. I don't, I don't know what, not wearing animals, but uh, you get, you get the idea. But it stinks to be misunderstood. And you see what happens is when someone doesn't diffuse gossip, man, it can take a, 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 an ugly route. It can really do some damage within the church. It can sit, really do some damage within a family when you're not one to correct false accusations. When you don't diffuse it, man, it can create a toxic environment Thus leading, in this instance, Paul's coming into a very toxic environment where literally his life is on the line. His life is at risk because they didn't do two things. They didn't diffuse gossip and they didn't effectively disciple these young believers. Take a look in verse 22, how it plays out. It says, what then is to be done? They will certainly hear that you have come do therefore what we tell you. We have four men who are under a vow. Take these men and purify yourself along with them and pay their expenses so that they may shave their heads. Thus, all will know that there is nothing in what they have been told about you, but that you yourself also live in observance of the law. But as for the Gentiles who have believed, we have sent a letter with our judgment that they should abstain from what has been sacrificed to idols and from blood and from what has been strangled and from sexual immorality. Then Paul took the men, and the next day he purified himself along with them and went in the temple, giving notice 
when the days of purification would be fulfilled in the offering presented for each one of them. All right, so that takes a little bit of explanation for sure. So first thing you notice is they do ask the right question. What does it say is the question they ask? What then is to be done? In other words, what should we do? Here's the problem though. They ask the question, but don't listen for a response. You don't hear anything as far as Paul giving any kinds of suggestions. So that's one problem. It's his life that's at stake. So they don't seek the counsel of him. And then what don't you sense either? You don't get the sense that they're like, you know what? Let's, let's take a, some time and seek the, the Holy Spirit about this. Let's pray about it. See what God's will is in this situation. Instead, it says, no, we know exactly what you should do. Just do what we tell you. So basically, they came up with a plan. And when you read this plan, you might, as, as you reflect on it, realize it's a pretty questionable plan. They're choosing to try to manage perceptions rather than address the issue. They want to appease the masses rather than communicate with the people. My question is, why didn't they rally together, pull together all these Jewish believers and have one big family meeting and actually communicate about the issue at hand? Why not do that? Instead, what are they trying to do? They're trying to avoid and trying to manage the way he appears. Why don't you put on this display and then maybe they're going to be appeased by your behavior? Do you think that's a real great plan? Is that, is that usually work well when you just try to manage people's perceptions of you? Not a real wise plan. And up until this point, when something's driven by the Holy Spirit, Paul, the, the author Luke is very clear and makes sure that he points to it being driven by the Spirit. So what are they asking Paul to do? Basically, you have, he has four different believers that are having a, a Nazarite vow. A Nazarite vow was a, a vow that was on display to show their commitment to Christ. Pretty awesome thing. It's a beautiful thing. At the end of that Nazarite vow, which was most typically a 30-day vow, they would then cut, finally cut their hair and shave it so they look like me. So at the end of that, they would have to go to the temple. They would have to have a sacrifice that they would present and pay for the ceremony with the temple. So both of those, all those things had some costs attached to it. So they're suggesting to Paul, they're saying, why don't you join these four guys? You go through the cleansing process that you're supposed to do when you come from a Gentile territory back into Jerusalem. So you go through a purification process and you join these guys in this ceremony showing a display that you're what? Still in it. You're still committed to the law. So they're saying, why don't you do this demonstration? Now, is that demonstration compelled by personal conviction by Paul? Was Paul feeling, you know, these four guys, they're really struggling. I feel the Holy Spirit's leading me to go help them out. That's what we would hope when someone's moved to actually assist somebody, that it's something that's compelled by what the Lord's doing in their life. There's no clue of that. There's no sign of that. They're like, just go do this and put on a show for the people to appease kind of their viewpoint of them. I think it was a poor decision. So Paul responds to it. To me, his response is kind of strange. What does he choose to do? Chooses to do it. He chooses to do it. 
Now, at first, you're just like, that's not very consistent with him. His normal response or reactions to Jewish hostility or legalism, that's not typical. But what is he choosing to do? He's choosing to submit to the leadership there. He's choosing to submit to the leadership there. He talks about a number of principles. 1 Corinthians 8, he talks about, he talks about the idea of elevating the law of love over the law of liberty. In 1 Corinthians 9, he talks about becoming all things to all people so that some might be saved. He's choosing the route of what? Humility. He's saying, I'm going to do this. I imagine as he's listening to that play, and I wonder if he's thinking to himself, this is a really dumb idea, but let's see how it plays out. So he actually does it. He actually effectively does it. But if we're thinking through this before we're too quick to cast stones, how often do we do the same thing that the elders did and try going the route of avoidance and just hope that things work out all right? Kind of skirt by issues, we, we skip conversations, we, 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 we try to avoid difficult interactions and just think by going back to kind of life as usual, maybe things will mend themselves. Maybe the, the ache will eventually go away. Maybe things will, will make it right just by time passing. How seldom does that work though? How seldom does that work? A couple of years ago, I had a parent that brought their child into my office. And this kid, you could tell, is super anxious, nervous about talking to the pastor. And she had him share with me a kind of a confession. He said, he explained to me that when the offering was being passed in kids' blast, that he took advantage of that to add a little bit to his personal bank account took a few bucks from the Kids Blast offering. Not a good thing, right? That's a, and he thought, he is interesting hearing this cute little guy explain this situation. One, he was just saying, you know, I, I, I thought that over time, that voice would get more quiet. He didn't exactly say it like this. He thought, he thought that it would, it would go away, that guilt and that, and that shame. He said, but you know what? What do you think happened? Kept getting worse. And worse. And before I knew it, I, I couldn't live with myself. I had to confess this. I had to come clean. And, and this kid, like, fully pouring out his, his heart to me in, the, in this room about the money he stole from the church, I excommunicated him. No, I'm just kidding. Uh, but here, it was a tender, teachable moment. It was a beautiful thing. But what a great reminder of how well avoidance works. It doesn't work. It doesn't work. And here in this example, it doesn't work either. Ver Let's continue just to see how it plays out. Verse 27, it says, When the seven days were almost completed, the Jews from Asia, seeing him in the temple, stirred up the crowd and laid hands on him, crying out, Men of Israel, help! This is the man who is teaching everyone everywhere against the people and the law and this place. Moreover, he has even brought Greeks into the temple and has defiled this holy place. For they had previously seen Trophimus, the Ephesian, with him in the city, and they supposed that Paul had brought him into the temple. Then the, all the city was stirred up, and the people ran together. They seized Paul and dragged him out of the temple, and at once the gates were shut. And as they were seeking to kill him, word came to the tribune of the cohort that all Jerusalem was in confusion." 
He at once took soldiers and centurions and ran down to them. When they saw the tribune and the soldiers, they stopped beating Paul. Then the tribune came up and arrested him and ordered him to be bound with two chains. He inquired who he was and what he had done. Some in the crowd were shouting one thing, some another. And as he could not learn the facts because of the uproar, he ordered him to be brought to, into the barracks. And when they came to the steps, he actually carried by the soldiers because of the violence of the crowd. For the mob of the people followed, crying out, away with him, or better phrased, kill him. So based on this, kind of ranking this, would you say that that plan worked well or poorly? What's your kind of interpretation by voting well or poorly? I, I, I would suggest well. Now, if a plan, answer this question, if a plan is from God, is that plan going to work well or poorly? What's your, what's your vote? Do you think God comes up with the plans? And he's like, oh, shoot, that didn't work. Like, no, no, no way. Another thing pointing to the fact that this was a man-made devised plan and was a poor idea trying to manage perception rather than address the issue. So what's happens here is he shows up, he's kind of going through the motions, doing all these things, a demonstration of his loyalty or commitment to the law, and all of a sudden these Jewish men that are in town for Pentecost, because remember they're here for a holiday, they've come from different areas all around, For these Jewish men came from the same area that Paul's been ministering to. And he's like, oh, we know this guy. So they take advantage of this opportunity to stir up the crowd and they poke the crowd in the areas that they're most susceptible. Look at these accusations that they make. Think about this crowd that's there all together. Teaching against the people. This is where the city of Jerusalem has gone from a 60,000 person population to during the holidays, they'd have upwards of around 500,000 Jews there at one time. Pretty intense. Can you imagine what that would do to kind of the local hotels and all of that? Pretty intense. So would that be a, a good time for somebody to hear that you're an anti-Jewish Jew? Would that be a good time for them to hear that? So, so probably a pretty good poke there. How about opposing the law? The Pentecost, the celebration of Pentecost in that day had become a celebration of the law being given to them at Mount Sinai. Do you think during this holiday that's a good time to tell them that this guy's anti-law? Uh, probably a pretty good poke. So you don't wonder why this crowd is getting stirred up, speaking against the, the, the temple. They've always had this thing for their temple, for sure. And then the last one, bringing Greeks into the temple. Josephus, a, a Jewish historian, tells that throughout the temple, it had these signs that were posted, making sure that they didn't bring Gentiles into the area. The, the signs read this. It says, on the penalty of death, let no foreigner go further. So here, all of these pokes made for what? A really angry crowd. They're so fired up, they drag him out of the temple. I find this interesting. They're so committed to not defiling the temple. They're like, well, we want to kill this guy, but we don't want to do it in the temple to defile it. So they drag him outside of the temple. Isn't the irony there though, that they're willing to kill somebody based on no legal proceeding, just on accusations, no, but, but they want to make sure that they're not defiling the temple. 
So it says a little bit of something about the maturity of even some of the believers in that day. Again, a lack of discipleship for sure. So there in that chaos, it points to the fact that he's getting beaten. And then what happens? Romans, which is kind of ironic, come to his rescue. The tribune or the one responsible for keeping order in the, in the temple. Are you tracking with me? In the, in the temple there, it comes with a, a bunch of soldiers because he's heard that there's this mob going on. It says, we'll stop it. They actually rescue and save his life, which is a, a pretty cool thing. But then the, when you think about a really bad day, things get kind of go from bad to worse because what? Now, no longer is he getting beat by the Jews, but now the, the, the zealous Jewish uh, Christians there, now he's handed over and now he's chained. It set points to two chains, which is really fulfilling the prophecy that we talked about last week with Agabus that he foretold that he would be held with two chains specific there. Now he's in the hands of the Romans. And that's not a good situation. Talk about a, a day going from bad to worse, but at least it saved his life. And it points to, in verse 37 through 39, it points to this request that Paul makes, man, can I just talk to the crowd? Can I just address them? Can I just share what's going on? And it has a little bit of a, a back and forth there with some mistaken identity. But ultimately, in verse 40, he gets this opportunity. We're going to wrap up with this. And it says, and when he had Given him permission, Paul, standing on the steps, motioned with his hand to the people. And when there was a great hush, he addressed them in the Hebrew language, saying, to be continued next week. We're going to pause there. We're not going to hear what he has to say, but here's what I wanted to point out in this section. Here's what I wanted to point out. One thing shouldn't shock us, the fact that Paul's willing to address this audience, what should shock us, though, is my question for us, where in the world was the church? Where in the world were all of the, the leaders that he had just met with yesterday? Where are the elders? Where's James? Where, where are they at? Are they cowering in the corner? You imagine if this is happening right in the center of the temple, there's no way that word hadn't made it to the leaders of the church. My question is, why is Paul left hanging out on a limb to defend himself at his greatest point of need? It's kind of sad, isn't it? It's kind of sad because really, isn't the church, when we're going through difficult times, isn't that when we're supposed to rise to the occasion more than any other time? Like that's, that, that's Christ's heart for the church is that we'd be a community. When someone's going through a difficult season, man, that's when we're supposed to rise up and be there the most. Isn't that the most obvious display of love in somebody's life? Man, when you're hurting, I'm gonna rise up and I'm gonna defend you, right? I think back to a story and we'll wrap up after this, but I was thinking back to a story. My, in uh, high school, I was about 15 years old and uh, I was... Uh, spending time with a, a young lady uh, who was dating another man, a, a guy that was about 22 years old. Shouldn't have been hanging out. I learned this with her. The guy came to me at a, at a health club, and he's 22, I'm 15, and he punched me really hard in the face. I don't know if you've ever been punched in the face before. It's not fun. So I 
I didn't do much fighting back because I was young and he was much older and much larger. And, uh, and in this situation, I remember going home and I'm like, man, I don't want to tell my dad what happened. It's kind of embarrassing and kind of there. But then after a little bit later in the evening, I was like, I can't open my, my jaw. It's kind of stuck like this. And so I was like, man, maybe I need to go to a doctor and figure this out. And so I remember explaining that to my dad. And he's like, oh, well, we're going to take care of this. So anyway, he involves the police. I guess there's a whole assault thing that's attached between minors and, uh, and adults. Like, is that a thing still? And, uh, and so as if I don't know the answer to that. Uh, and so he takes them. They, they end up bringing this guy into the police station. And then my dad Ask the policeman, do you mind if I have a conversation with this young man? It's like, what police station lets you do that? But anyway, this was Melrose Park. They're totally crooked. But anyway, so they end up letting, letting my dad go in. And my dad does his like best Al Capone. Like it says, listen, I know where you live. I know who your family is. If you ever step foot close to my son, I'm going to take care of you and like literally threatens this man's life. Like I'm like, I'm like, what, what in the world? So anytime that day moving forward, if, if, if this guy saw me in the neighborhood, he'd like walk the other direction. Like, you know, like he was totally avoiding any kind of interaction because basically my dad said he was going to kill him. And so, so, so here, here's the, the point to that. Maybe a little point is, man, isn't that what the church is supposed to be not threatening lives, but standing up for people when they're going through their hardest times, when they get punched in the face, when life has them knocked down, when they're all out. Isn't that what the church is supposed to be? And my question is, where in the world were these leaders at when Paul's literally getting punched in the face? When he's literally getting beat down for us, man, I think back to this season of life, whatever time we're, I'm at this church, whatever amount of time you're at this church, man, don't you want to give an account of our church? Man, when somebody's going through a hard time, we were there for them. Man, when there was an issue that needed to be addressed, we spoke up. We confronted that issue. Man, when gossip started to sneak its way into the church, man, we squelched that immediately. That wasn't what we were about. Wouldn't you love that to be what we're known for as Agora Bible Fellowship? That's my heart for this church. I hope that's your heart for this church. And I believe that these teachable moments from the book of Acts can keep these things on our radar so we don't go the route of avoidance. So we don't go the route of gossip. So we don't slip down those slippery slopes is what God's called us to in being the church that doesn't leave scars. Let me pray as we wrap up. God, I thank you for this text and I thank you for this example. And so often there's examples to emulate. And in this case, there's some observations to avoid, some missteps that were made. God, I thank you for your grace in all of this, that you can use your word to even warn us and caution us of these things even still today, God. I thank you for the fact that you have built an unstoppable church that even with the scars and the wounds keeps on moving forward, God. These things don't represent your heart. Your desire for your church is protection. Your desire for your church is to take ground. Your desire for your church is not to avoid. Your desire is for us to win people to Jesus Christ. God, I thank you for your grace and patience in all of this. Thank you for this beautiful picture in scripture. 
of things to avoid. In Jesus Christ's name, amen. Just a couple things just as you're leaving here this morning. One is if you want the church to be the church in your life where you're receiving and you're giving and all of that, you can't stay on the fringe. And so you hear all these different announcements and ways to get involved. We'd highly encourage, especially during the fall, to engage in community here. Secondly, if there's a way that we can be praying for you, we'll have a few volunteers here after the service would be thrilled to pray with you following the service. And then lastly, if you wouldn't mind, just as you're leaving today, make sure you tell somebody you encounter how much your pastor loves animals. God bless you. Have a great Sunday.